In this first lesson, I am going to emphasize the need for us to read the Bible. It's insufficient to know some things about the Bible or parts of the Bible, but we must know the Bible, all of the Bible. We must be familiar with every part of it, every chapter of the Bible, every paragraph of the Bible, every verse of the Bible. We should be able to understand and articulate anything and everything that's in the Bible because this is what God has given to us. It has been deposited into our hands and therefore we are responsible to guard it and to understand it and to preach and teach it faithfully. Whether we are preaching and teaching it faithfully publicly or privately in whatever setting, that's what we need to do. Now, people who say and who disdain reading the Bible, they are actually believing the way cultists believe and cult leaders are. Cult leaders, they have some superficial, they have some knowledge of the Bible, but they don't have proper knowledge of the Bible and they do not have comprehensive knowledge of the Bible. They must have proper and comprehensive knowledge. But cult leaders themselves are so consumed with other things that literally Many of them do not even read the Bible, the whole Bible, let alone uh, any part of the Bible. They don't read the Bible. They want nothing to do with it. They are busy with their own sermons, their own ideas, their own thoughts, their own whims that they communicate to the people. And let me give you an example of this. In the year 1854, the 8th of October, 1854, Brigham Young, Brigham Young, the second president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as they like to call themselves these days, LDS, or the Mormons, the Mormons, the second president or second prophet, false prophet of their cult. He said this in one discourse. It's called LDS General Conference Discourse, 8th of October, 1854. It was in the 1820s and 30s when this cult was founded by Joseph Smith. But this is what he says, Brigham Young. He says, I think these preliminaries will satisfy me, and I feel prepared to take my text. It is the words of Jesus Christ. But where they are in the Bible, I cannot tell you now. For I have not taken the pains to look at them. I have had as much to do that I have not read the Bible for many years. I used to be a Bible student. I used to read and study it, but did not understand the spirit and meaning of it. I knew well enough how to read. I have read the Book of Mormon, the Book of Doctrine and Covenants, and other revelations of God which he has given to his people in latter times. I look at them and contrast the spirit and power of them with my faithfulness. My clerks know how much time I have to read. 
It is difficult for me to snatch time enough even to eat my breakfast and supper, to say nothing of reading. Unquote. It's not just Brigham Young. It is many, many people in various denominations or independent churches. It's not just the pastors. It's everybody. Everybody, in one way or another, thinks like this and behaves like this. We must not and cannot be that way. Why so? Because the Bible itself tells us not to be that way. The Bible tells us we should be reading and we should know. We should know what is in the Bible. Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Hosea 4, 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. He says there's no knowledge of God in the land. Chapter 4, verse 6, Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Hosea 6, 1 to 3. Hosea 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. For his going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Verse 6, 6, 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 8, Hosea 8, verse 12. 8.12 Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. Many people are strangers to the Bible. They are very unfamiliar with its contents. They don't know what it says. How about in the New Testament? Does the New Testament expect us to be this way? Because people will often, they will disparage the thought that we should know the Bible by reading the Bible. They say that in the New Testament, everything is grace and love. Nothing is about knowledge 
and obedience. Nothing is about righteousness and the holiness of God. Everything is grace and love, mercy, compassion. And on that pretext, on that uh, fickle, sandy foundation, they say, well, don't bother me. I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to know what's in it because I believe in Jesus, so I'm going to heaven. I'm saved. Don't bother me. Well, what does the New Testament say about this? Our first example comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, 10, and 11. Let's see this commendation of the Bereans. The Bereans, they were the inhabitants of a city called Berea, and they are commended here. For what? Acts 17, 10. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. These people, the Jews of the synagogue of Berea, are compared to the Jews of the synagogue of the previous city, Thessalonica, where Paul was ministering in the early part of the chapter. And notice how they are commended. They are called more noble-minded. More noble-minded, more honorable, more esteemed. For what? What did they do? They received the word with great eagerness. They wanted to know. Paul was saying things from the word and they were receiving it with great eagerness. Not just eagerness, great eagerness. Very excited. Examining the scriptures daily. Examine. That means that they were not merely casually coming across a word or a phrase or a verse. They were not reading some daily devotional that has a snippet or a verse on the page and then the rest of it is the author's thoughts, the author's gibberish. It says here, examining the scriptures daily, not once in a while, but daily, to see whether these things were so. The apostle was preaching some things that intrigued them. They were curious. They had not considered the things that the apostle had said. So they wanted to know, is that actually in the Bible? And they are commended, commended for doing so. Another place we find is the book of Hebrews. Or actually, before Hebrews, Colossians. The book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. The book of Acts 17, 10 and 11, and Colossians 3, 16, these are applicable to everyone in the church, not only the pastor, everyone. 3, 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
The word of Christ, which is the whole Bible, Old and New Testament alike, both are to be richly dwelling within us. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. We read Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. In verse 11, it says, Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For by this time, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, but for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Let's read also into chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ... Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. In 6, 1-2, he calls these doctrines and practices He calls them elementary teaching. The question then is, do we already know this elementary teaching? Do we know whatever the scripture says about those doctrines mentioned in verses 1 and 2? That's what it means to leave the elementary teaching. And then he says we have to or ought to press on to maturity. Be accustomed in chapter 5 verse 13 to the word of righteousness. The gospel, the word of Christ has been among them long enough and now he is scolding them for being dull of hearing and not growing in their faith. Because of what? They keep drinking milk of basic teachings, elementary teachings, and they are not pressing on to maturity and eating solid food. Infants... Infants drink milk only. And we cannot remain spiritual infants, according to the New Testament. Now, these three passages in the New Testament ought to suffice. There's many more examples. But this ought to suffice, along with what we read in Hosea, to explain to us, prove to us, that we have to read the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, cover to cover, be very familiar with it, constantly, Not just once, twice, thrice in our life, but constantly throughout our life. Reading the whole Bible for our whole life and apply it to every part of our life from head to toe. That's what the Bible must be to us. Because ignorance 
in the term, this term, in these terms, is not a biblical virtue. According to these verses, ignorance is actually sin. It leads us into sin. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance equals a curse. Because if we continue in sin, we will be punished by God. So we cannot be ignorant, but be knowledgeable of the ways of God. Okay, that's point number, the first point to make. Read the Bible, be knowledgeable of it, and that's what we need to (coughs) convey to people. Everyone must know the Bible, which is accessible to everyone. Now, we might also ask, why is it that we teach only the Bible? Why is it that we are supposed to teach only the Bible, not the Bible plus the ideas of men mix and mingle, not the Bible 50%, words of men 50%, not the Bible 25%, Words of men, 75%. Why is it that we should be so focused on the Bible and not the words of men, including their anecdotes, illustrations, humor, uh, speculations, commentaries? Why is it that our mind should not be focused, fixed on the words of men, but on the words of God? Why is that so important? As a church. 1 Timothy 3.15 says that 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 says that I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. Well, if the truth is supposed to be in the church, then we are stewards of that truth. We cannot let go of it. That means we need to know what the truth is and foster it, nourish it, keep it, guard it, and spread it. That's the reason the church is in existence to keep the truth in its midst. Not to give it up and not to mix it with falsehood, but the truth of the gospel itself. So, if that's the case, then what about the minister, the pastor, the elder, the preacher, the teacher? Is he supposed to, is he supposed to preach scripture Unmingled. Yes or no? Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Titus 1, 9. This is a qualification of an elder or pastor. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, 
that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. What is supposed to be held fast? The faithful word. We're supposed to grasp it and not let it go. The faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, in accordance with the apostolic teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. What is the means to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict? The faithful word. That's the word of Christ, the Bible. That is the means to do so. Verses 13 and 14. Titus 1, 13. This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Where's the truth? In the scripture. Where's falsehood, lies, deceit, Jewish myths and commandments of men. That's why we must preach and teach the truth. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. 4.11. 1 Peter 4.11. 4.11. Whoever speaks... Let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever speaks, what should he be speaking? The utterances, the words of God. What else does he have to offer? He should be preaching and teaching the utterances of God. If we don't preach and teach the utterances of God, if we don't speak the utterances of God, what are we then speaking? Does the Bible tell us what the alternative is? Does it describe the alternative? Yes. James 3. James 3, 13 to 18. If we're not preaching the word of truth, if we're not preaching and teaching the utterances of God, what is the alternative? What would we be speaking? James three thirteen. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He says in 14, 
we ought not to lie against the truth. How do people lie against the truth? Verse 15, with earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. If we present earthly, natural, demonic wisdom, we lie against the truth. Now, in James' mind, when he says the truth, does he mean the word of truth, the Bible? Yes. James 1, 18. James 1, 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. There, the word of truth is what caused us to be brought forth. We are born again, brought forth, or we produce fruit, how? By the word of truth. 121. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The word implanted is able to save your souls. Now, he's telling us, if we have the word implanted, if we are receiving the word of truth, if we are living according to this word of truth, not earthly, natural, demonic wisdom, what will it do? Save our souls. But will earthly, natural, demonic wisdom save our souls? Of course not. He's clearly contrasting the two in this very short letter. That means we need the word of truth. Hebrews chapter 4. What is the word of truth able to do that words of men are unable to do? Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We have to do on the day of judgment before him where everything is open and laid bare. So what is it that is going to expose the hidden things inside of us? Verse 12 says, the word of God. The word of God is living, active, and sharper than two, any two-edged sword. Not the words of men, the word of God will prepare us to meet God on the day of judgment when we have to do before him. The word of God will do that. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. When we preach, what are we supposed to preach? We're still answering that question. And why? What and why? Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What was it? What was it that they preached? They heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. They heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and they believed. That's how they were saved. They were saved by listening to the words of God and believing the words of God, not the words of men. Romans 10. Romans 10, 17. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It doesn't say the word of men. It doesn't say commandments of men, speculations, musings, poetry, music of men. It doesn't say anything like that. It says word of Christ. If the word of Christ isn't preached, then there cannot be any true faith. Faith in music, faith in illustrations, faith in the fictions and musings and speculations of men don't save anybody. We need to know the word of Christ for there to be true faith. And according to Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith, this true faith, is sin. Romans 14, 23. Either we have true faith or we have sin. It cannot be anything else. Elsewhere, we find in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. 12 verses 11 to 14. Ecclesiastes 12, 11. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person, because God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. In 11, the words of wise men are the words of Scripture. They are like goads. The masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. Who would the masters of these collections be? They would be you and me. If we are masters of the collections of the words of the wise men of Scripture, then we would be well-driven nails. That means that if we're not masters, if we are not experts, if we are not knowledgeable of the collections of the words of wise men, that is, the Bible, if we're not masters of the Bible then we are not like well-driven nails. Now, what carpenter, what home builder, 
Who wants to use nails and drive a nail into two pieces of wood that are supposed to stick together and do it only one-fourth of the way? One-third of the way. One-half of the way. Three-fourths of the way. Ninety percent of the way. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be well-driven nails. If we are not like well-driven nails, then we are unstable. And it's not good to be unstable, double-minded in all our ways. We must be stable like well-driven nails. That's only possible if we are masters of the Bible. But in contrast, the Bible given by one shepherd, he says, in contrast, the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. And this is presented as a warning. A warning. Why a warning? Like we read in James 1, 18 and 21, like we read in Ephesians 1, 13, there's no salvation otherwise. Romans 10, 17, there's no true faith otherwise. That's why it's a warning. He says, writing many books is endless. We know that. Today in a world of 7 billion or 8 billion people, if just half of the people wrote a book, let's say 100 pages long, that would be endless. Nobody could read them all. Even now we cannot read everything that comes our way. It's endless. So if human books are endless, is God's book endless? No. He has given us sufficiently what we need to know for our salvation and daily living, our sanctification, to prepare us to meet Him. And then he says, excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Yes, those men who are long in reading and writing and seated at a table, bent over, they have serious health problems. They actually do. Neck, back, eyesight problems. They have severe problems because they are excessively devoted to books and it destroys the body. Books of men. Not the books of the Bible, the books of men. Okay, then if we are supposed to preach and teach it, how are we supposed to preach and teach it? Can we just pick and choose what we like? Can we handpick? Can we cherry pick? Is that the way it's supposed to be? Or are we supposed to be comprehensive? Are we supposed to be complete and full? Are we supposed to be wide-ranging? Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah 26, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah 26, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word. 
Remember when Jeremiah was first called into the ministry, chapter 1? He was timid, afraid, and he said, how can I do this? I am, I am but a youth. And the God's answer was, do not say that I am a youth, but whatever I tell you, you shall speak. And he would protect him. Well, here again, he tells him in verse 2, do not omit a word. Now, what would tempt Jeremiah to omit a word? Because of what he would have to say to them. Look at verse 3. Perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may relent of the evil which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. What is it that he has to tell the people publicly in the court of the Lord's house in the temple when the crowds are coming to worship and offer sacrifices and prayers? What does he have to tell the crowds of people? Turn from your evil deeds. Turn away from your evil deeds. Evil deeds. But most people would be shocked and they would say, what are you talking about? I don't do anything evil. What's wrong with you? You're a madman, Jeremiah. And in this chapter, they arrested him and they wanted to put him to death. It was, it was prevented, but that's what they tried to do because he was doing that. So naturally, Jeremiah would be afraid. They might grab me. They might arrest me. They might throw me in prison. They might feed me sparingly. They might make me die in misery. Or they might pull me out of it, whip me, they might torture me and then stone me to death. Stoning to death. They might do that. So he would be naturally afraid. So no consequences were supposed to be before his eyes. Simply do not omit a word. Tell them everything I want you to tell them. The prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah is told the same. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Jonah 3, 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. What's he supposed to preach? The proclamation which I am going to tell you. That leaves no room for Jonah to adjust the message. It leaves no room for Jonah to soften the tone. It leaves no room for Jonah to be inventive in his presentation, in his diction. He cannot add fiction to his diction. He has to actually say it as God wants him to say it. And what was it that God wanted him to say? Look at verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the summation. That's not the full extent of what he preached, but that's a summary. That's the gist of what he preached. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Who wants to hear that? Which city... Or city-state king wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. Because then naturally people would say, well, why are you saying that, Jonah? What did we do? What's wrong with us? We thought we were swell. We thought everything was fine. Look at all these blessings, physical blessings we enjoy. What makes you think that what you're telling us is right, Jonah? 
right? They would naturally object and maybe even violently object. But Jonah was still supposed to say that. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You, which means you better repent and believe in the gospel. Is it that way? Is it supposed to be that way in the New Testament? Or is the New Testament, like Marcion thought, the Marcion of old in AD 150, that heretic son of the devil who said the God of the Old Testament is wrathful, he's righteous, holy, wrathful, he's the creator. The God of the New Testament is the redeemer and there's only love, only love. Only grace. 1 Corinthians, or no, not 1 Corinthians, Acts. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul explains his own ministry. And this is what he says. Acts 20, 26 to 27. 26 to 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He's telling these elders where he was preaching previously, and they came and met up with him. And he's telling them <clears throat> that he is witnessing against them in a, in a sense, <coughs> that he is innocent of their blood. Why is he innocent of their blood? God will not hold him accountable because he did not shrink from declaring the whole purpose of God. The whole, what would the whole purpose of God include? Repentance for forgiveness of sins. He says so in verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you mean repent? What sin did I commit? Well, let me tell you. Repent for forgiveness of sins. And then they are also supposed to put faith in Christ. They might say, well, I already have faith in my God. Why do I need to believe in what you're preaching in Christ? No, you must put faith in Christ. Not faith in your faith, not faith in your religion, not faith in your God or gods, not faith in a false Christ, but faith in the Christ that I'm preaching to you, the true Christ. And most people will reject that message. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Most reject it when it is preached as it ought to be preached. It was preached in the correct way in Acts 24. 24. Acts 24. 24 to 25. Or 24 to 27. Acts 24, 24. And some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, 
and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Felix, the governor, has Paul preaching to him. And he knows something of the Bible already because he is married to a Jewess who would have known some things about the Old Testament. We don't know the the extent to which she had knowledge, true knowledge, but she had some knowledge, at least some factual knowledge, that she would have conveyed to Felix, her husband. But Paul, he's preaching faith in Christ Jesus, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Faith in Christ, not faith in your Roman gods and goddesses, Felix. Faith in Christ. Righteousness, not wickedness, Felix. Not sin, Felix. Not iniquity, Felix. Not lawlessness, Felix. Righteousness. Self-control. Not indulgence, Felix. Not debauchery, Felix. Not whatever you feel like doing, Felix. Self-control. A fruit of the Spirit, Felix. And the judgment to come. Felix, are you ready for the day of judgment when Christ will sit on the throne? Felix, do you know that there will be a judgment? The sheep on one side, the goats on the other side? And Christ, he will hold you accountable on that day of judgment. Are you ready, Felix? And either there is heaven for the sheep or hell for the goats. Eternal punishment in hell, in the lake of fire. Felix, are you ready? Paul's preaching, right? Is he not preaching righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come? Yes. Then it frightened Felix so much that he told Paul to go away, at least for a time, until his emotions calmed down. How many pastors, evangelists, apologists, and average Christians preach like this and frighten people. This is a grown man. This is a governor. When we preach, do we frighten people? Today, people say, don't preach those negative things. Don't preach against sin. If you preach against sin and you talk about hell, you're going to frighten them and they won't want to listen to you anymore. But we're supposed to preach that way. Otherwise, here... Paul is a sinner. If it's a sin to preach that way, to tell people about their evil and the judgment to come, if it's a sin to do that today, then Paul sinned because he did that to Felix and Drusilla. He did it to them. Did Paul sin? If we say no, then why don't we practice the same? Preach and teach, evangelize in the same way as he did. Further, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll actually close with this passage on how the word should be preached and why it should be preached. 
not the words of men. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. When the Apostle Paul preached to the Corinthians, he did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. What's he talking about there? He's talking about what he mentioned in chapter 1, 18 to 31, the wisdom of the men of the age, the wisdom of human rationale, human philosophy, human theology, human speculations. He did not come with any human wisdom, nor did he come with clever speech, superiority of speech. He was not a winsome and charming speaker. He was not an eloquent speaker. And he admits it, 2 Corinthians 11.6. But even if, well, actually, he doesn't actually and fully admit it. He's saying, let me take your argument, Corinthians, and say this. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge, in fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. They were criticizing him. Paul, you're not as good a speaker as these other philosophers, these other theologians, these other commentators, these other elders. You're not very good, Paul, as these other apostles. And his argument is, but even if that is the case, I'm not so in knowledge. Even if he isn't the best in eloquence, it doesn't matter. Eloquence is not the issue. What is the issue? Is the truth being preached with conviction, confidence, clarity, and the desire to honor Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit? Is that what's happening? If that's what's happening, according to true knowledge, then the way we say it, the eloquence doesn't matter. Because then we're depending on human wisdom, human ability, human skill, human speech. And then verse 2, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He didn't want to preach anything else except Jesus Christ and actually, that excludes himself. It's nothing like Jesus Christ plus, you know, uh, let me tell you some things about me. Let me tell you my experiences. Let me tell you what I think. Let me tell you everything about me and my upbringing, my background, my past week, 
the struggles I've had the last month. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We do not preach ourselves. So only preach Jesus Christ. Further, it says him crucified. He chose to focus on the crucifixion here. Not the resurrection, not the ascension, not the glorification, not the blessings of heaven, but Jesus Christ crucified. Why? Because that's where we meet our sins. We understand why he had to die for our sins. So then our sins have to be exposed to know why he died. Verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Why does he say this? Was he weak because of men in the sight of men? Was he in fear because of men in the sight of men? Was he in much trembling because of men in the sight of men? Was he fearing man? Was he biting his nails, knocking his knees because he knew he had to preach before men or skeptical men? Why is he saying weakness, fear, much trembling, verse 3? It's not before men. It's before God. It's before God. He realizes that he is weak before God, so he needs the grace of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He needs the grace of Christ in his weakness. He needs the fear of God, and he needs to tremble before God as he considers this honorable and weighty task of preaching the truth to the people. He's going to be held ac accountable before God himself. Held accountable before God himself. That's why he charged Timothy in the presence of God and of the holy angels to preach faithfully, to preach the word. Further, verse 4 says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. The persuasive words of human wisdom, as he was saying in 118. Actually, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 4 is a discourse against human wisdom in contrast to God's wisdom in the cross of Christ. That's chapters 1 to 4, 1 Corinthians. So, Words, persuasive words of wisdom has to do with human wisdom. He did not care to present any of that. It didn't matter to him, not even his own. Only the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Wherein is the demonstration of the Spirit and power? Where is it? In the Bible. In the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1, 
16. The power of God is in the gospel, the word of the gospel. 5. If we are not preaching the word of the gospel, where the spirit and power are, then what happens? Verse 5. That your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Why is he preaching the word of God and not the wisdom of men? Because the faith of men might rest on the wisdom of men and they won't be saved. There's no salvation in the wisdom of men. Only in the power of God, which is in the Word of God and Spirit of God. That's all. Word of God and Spirit of God, not the wisdom of men. This is why we must know the Bible. We must read the Bible. We have to understand that every part of the Bible, even the parts that people don't like to hear about sin and evil, They have to be preached. People need to understand. And we don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has to be preached. Christ and his cross. The word of the cross. That's what we must preach. Not the wisdom of men. It's a matter of salvation. It's not a matter of preference, personality, knowledge or ignorance. It's a matter of salvation. So we should take it that seriously. That's why we take the approach we take. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.